Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Lazarus and the Haunting Hypothetical for the fifth Sunday in Lent. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 10th, 2011. Of the more than 400 books that I've read and reviewed the last 10 years, one of my favorites is Nothing to be Frightened of by the British writer Julian Barnes. The New York Times named it one of the 10 best books of 2008. Barnes's memoir is an emotionally resonant exercise in that most Lenten of all disciplines, Memento Morum, Remember Your Death. Barnes, who was born in 1946, was never baptized, and he's never even attended a church service in his life, so he's never had any religious faith to lose. He gained by his unbelief honestly. His father was an agnostic, and his mother said that she didn't want any of that religious mumbo-jumbo. But the prospect of total extinction, both personal and cosmic, and the terror which the thought of absolute annihilation provokes in him, causes Barnes to admit in the very first sentence of his book that while he doesn't believe in God, he misses him. The title for Barnes's Disquisition on Death comes from one of his journal entries over 20 years ago, and I quote, People say of death, there's nothing to be frightened of. They say it quickly, casually. Now let's say it again, slowly, with re-emphasis. There's nothing to be frightened of. Jules Renard, the word that is most true, most exact, most filled with meaning, is nothing. Exactly where the emphasis on nothingness rightly falls is what occupies Barnes's considerable talents. The result is a book characterized by deeply personal candor, in broad-ranging critical, critical inquiry that encompasses art, music, philosophy, science, literature, and family memories. John's gospel story about Lazarus is only one of many instances deeply embedded throughout the New Testament of the claim that Jesus conquered death, 2 Timothy 2.10. The Lazarus story also illustrate, illustrates the fractious responses to Jesus. Over and over we read that the people were divided because of Jesus. His detractors said he was demon-possessed and raving mad. His own family declared him insane, and his brothers didn't believe in him. Many of his closest disciples quit following him. And even those who continued to follow him at first didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. We read in Luke 24:11, it seemed like nonsense. Eventually, though, those earliest disciples boldly preached the message articulated by Paul in this week's epistle in Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who lives in you. Doubts about the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus didn't begin with the 18th century Enlightenment philosophes, 
19th century Darwinists or with 20th century postmodernists. Only our modern hubris, what the British historian E.P. Thompson called the enormous condescension of posterity, could believe that only we today, finally, have advanced beyond the crude superstitions of illiterate peasants who were so gullible that they didn't know that corpses didn't rise from the dead. Alternate explanations for the story of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus arose along with early unbelief. We read in Matthew 28.15 that one widely circulated idea after Jesus' death was that the disciples stole the body and created the fiction of Christ's resurrection. Others argue that the life and teachings of Jesus are immortal in the sense of being sublime or intensely inspirational, much like we describe the literature of Shakespeare or the music of Mozart. Still others suggest that the spirit of Jesus lives in us as a powerful memory and presence, like the spirit of Gandhi or a favorite uncle who deeply influenced us when he was alive. These alternate explanations have in common the idea that the resurrection accounts are more myth and metaphor than history, more like religious poetry than straightforward narrative, something to be taken figuratively, not literally. But that's not what those first doubters came to believe, not by a long shot. To them, Lazarus and Jesus were truly and literally raised from the dead. Even if they couldn't fully understand, describe, or explain it, just as we can't today, they freely admitted that their gospel was a sham and that they were liars if Jesus was not raised from the dead. It might be that the first believers were badly deluded and wrong, or possibly blatant liars and immoral. As Pascal put it, deceived or deceivers. Neither of those explanations ring true to me. The only thing they stood to gain from preaching the resurrection was political persecution, intellectual scorn, economic hardship, and social marginalization. No person should believe a lie about the resurrection, said Paul, and they certainly shouldn't preach a lie. This story about the death of death succeeded, says Julian Barnes, not because first century people were gullible, not because it was violently imposed by throne and altar, not because it was a means of social control, and not because there were no other alternatives. No, the Christian story succeeded because it was what Barnes calls a beautiful lie or a supreme fiction. It's the stuff of a great novel, a tragedy with a happy ending. And good novelists, says Barnes, tell the truth with lies and tell lies with the truth. But Barnes doesn't let himself off the hook so easily. He says he's bothered by what he calls the haunting hypothetical, that this grand story of resurrection life could be true. His strictly atheist materialist option is simple enough. When your heart and brain cease to function, yourself ceases to exist. But in this view, Barnes wonders if the self is nothing more than random neural events. There is no ghost in the machine to begin with, 
So in fact, there's no self that ceases to exist. In postmodern parlance, personal identity is thus little more than a social construction. Barnes has nagging suspicions about this neat and clean scientific scenario. Even if they're hard to define or describe, a common-sense outlook endorsed by the vast majority of humanity that has ever lived is that intelligence, aesthetic imagination, moral impulse, consciousness, love, gratitude, guilt, regret, and the longing for immortality, all of these seem to point beyond themselves. They have the ring of truth that makes them hard to reduce to functions of mere biology. And so Barnes wonders, given his genuine lack of religious faith, whether it's proper to seek and to assign any meaning to his personal story. Does his life enjoy a genuine narrative? Or is it only a random sequence of neural events that ends with total extinction, such that any and all meaning-making is what he calls pure confabulation? One thing you can be sure of, Barnes reminds us, in the end it doesn't matter what you think. The divine reality in life after death, or lack thereof, is what it is. And so, quote, the notion of redefining the deity into something that works for you is grotesque, end quote. There's a deep irony here. In his review of the book The God Delusion by the Oxford atheist Richard Dawkins, Jim Holt of the New York Times observes that if the after-death options are either a beatific vision of God or oblivion with no God, then it's poignant to think that believers will never discover that they are wrong, whereas Dawkins and fellow atheists will never discover that they are right. And now for further reflections on the story of the raising of Lazarus, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton called The Convert. After one moment when I bowed my head and the whole world turned over and came upright, and I came out where the old road shone white, I walked the ways and heard what all men said. Forests of tongues like autumn leaves, unched, unshed, being not unlovable, but strange and light. Old riddles and new creeds, not in despite, but softly, as men smile about the dead. The sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle reason out through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. And all these things are less than dust to me because my name is Lazarus, and I live. For books this week, I review William Pfaff. The title is The Irony of Manifest Destiny, The Tragedy of Americans' Foreign Policy. New York, Walker and Company, 2010, 222 pages. For 60 years, William Fass has distinguished himself as a trenchant analysis of foreign policy and international relations, most notably on the pages of the International Herald Tribune, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books, 
not to mention in nine books he's published. With the encyclopedic knowledge of history that has characterized his previous works, this sweeping essay incorporates everyone from Hannah Arendt and Napoleon to Thucydides and Faust. Pfaff lents the extreme ideological violence and secular utopian aspirations that, however well-intentioned, have exploited millions in the name of liberation. According to Pfaff, the new paganism of the secular enlightenment dispensed with religion and adopted its own myth of progress, resulting in a powerful universalizing utopian ambition that almost always results in exterminating violence. Whereas religious worldviews reserve redemption for the afterlife beyond history, secular utopias demand transformation here and now. Although American ambitions were at first tempered by its isolationist posture in relationship to Europe, beginning with the end of World War I and Woodrow Wilson, it began to see itself as the single savior nation of the world, responsible for unapologetic intervention. It is America's job to change the world, said Condoleezza Rice, and in its own image. This utopian ideology, combined with pragmatic economic interests like natural gas and oil, has led to a condition of permanent war. America's national myth of utopian democracy, says Fast, surpasses historical possibility but it's nevertheless on full display in more than a thousand military bases overseas. Pfaff argues that there's an irreconcilable contradiction between historical reality and America's mythology as savior of the world. This has become most evident in the disastrous interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan which Fath describes as not ennoble, but simply breathtakingly ignorant, impractical, indifferent to historical experience and the political limits of nations, and contrary to the will as well as the interests of the people involved. In his final pages, he laments the loss of political realism as seen in George Keenan and the theologian-pastor Reinhold Niebuhr. A more non-interventionist posture, he says, would admit that Western democracy cannot prevail internationally, but nonetheless not remain passive in the face of atrocity. Unless and until that happens, says Pfaff, we're left with the Faustian spirit of extreme and defiant ambition and extreme risks. The author is William Pfaff, The Irony of Manifest Destiny. For movies this week, I review the film The Social Network from 2010. This docudrama about the founding of what was originally called The Facebook has viewers wondering what parts of it are history and what parts are fiction. The main part of the movie, though, is a matter of public record about the lawsuits between Mark Zuckerberg and his best friend at Harvard, Eduardo Severin, who supplied an early algorithm and financial support, and between Zuckerberg and the identical twins Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, 
who claimed Zuckerberg stole their idea from their own website called the Harvard Connection. At the end of the film, a young legal intern gives Zuckerberg some wise advice. Settle those two lawsuits no matter how expensive, because no jury would be very unsympathetic towards his abrasive personality into the cocaine-fueled binges in which Facebook was founded. Besides, she says, with 500 million users and a $50 billion valuation, for Zuckerberg, it would barely count as what she calls a speeding ticket. The Social Network from the year 2010. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's called Peace. When will you ever peace, wild wood dove, shy wings shut? Your round me roaming end and under be my boughs. When, when, peace, will you peace? I'll not play hypocrite to my own heart. I yield you do come sometimes, but that piecemeal peace is poor peace. What pure peace allows alarms of war, the daunting wars, the death of it? Oh, surely, reaving peace, my lord should leave and lose some good. And so he does leave patience exquisite that plumes to peace thereafter. And when peace here does house, he comes with work to do. He does not come to coo, he comes to brood and sit. Gerard Manley Hopkins, Peace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, April 10th, 2011, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.